I think the technology is driving us in exactly the opposite direction. It seems to me that an entity like the European Union, a major centralized, federalized, homogenized, top-down, is a perfect 19th century solution to a 21st century problem. Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I must start with an apology. It had been my intention to publish another regular TMI interview this week, but unfortunately, although I did have a conversation, and I did a fair amount of work for that by way of preparation, in the event so many things went wrong with that particular interview that I decided not to proceed with it. And busyness being such as it is at the moment, I've simply run out of time to conduct another interview to put in its place for this week. So, instead, I'm going to do something that I occasionally do, but I haven't done it for quite a while, actually, and that is to post what I call a guest episode, which long-term listeners will be familiar with, where I essentially take an opportunity like this to share something of interest or importance. So, in a few minutes, we're going to be listening to an exclusive interview, and I do mean that. Uh, as, as I speak, you will not find this anywhere else on the internet or elsewhere. Um, of course, once it's out there, who knows? But at the moment, it is exclusive. It's an interview conducted by my good friend Mark Campbell with the veteran broadcaster, science historian and futurist James Burke, a name that will be known to many of you, I'm sure, wherever you are in the world, but particularly to listeners here in the UK, because James Burke is something of a household name here, particularly among people... Well, I'd say of a certain age, uh, myself included, because for decades, during the 1960s, 70s, 80s and 90s, James Burke was simply one of the most famous and most engaging presenters of science and technology programmes on television. Um, added to which, although this is indeed something I don't personally remember, uh, just to be sure, uh, he has the distinction of being one of the main BBC presenters for the 1969 Apollo 11 moon landings. Now, I'll say a bit more about that in a minute, but I want to say something about The Mind Renewed itself first. Uh, many of you will remember that a few months ago I said that I wasn't quite sure how much time I was going to have available for podcasting in the near future due to the arrival of our new baby, and uh, you probably heard there in the, in the background, um, and I said the podcast might well become a fortnightly event, at least for the foreseeable future. Well, that's pretty much what did in fact happen. I was quite right about that. So now I am somewhat reluctantly making that official for the time being. There he goes again. Time, constra <laughs> time constraints are such that I'm not even going to try to get one podcast out each week until he grows up a bit and leaves us with a bit more time for such things. And I know that might sound a bit defeatist, but basically I'm just trying to be realistic here. So for the time being, TMR is now officially a fortnightly podcast. As I say, for the time being, I do hope to get back to almost weekly if I can manage it. Um, and of course, I will try very hard to stick to that and even harder to keep the standard up, which I think is what really matters. Um, I hope you agree with that. So having said that, we will turn back to this particular interview now, before we hear this, I want to say, as I very often do when I present other people's material, 
I do not necessarily agree with everything that is said in this conversation. Indeed, there are points upon which I definitely disagree with Mr. Burke in this interview. And those of you who know me will have a good idea of where those points of disagreement lie. But the reason why I'm sharing this with you is that uh, in spite of my points of disagreement, in spite of my worldview being different from his, I think this is essentially an intriguing and provocative interview with a person who is, you know, essentially a TV icon who made quite a, an impression upon me as a boy growing up in the 1970s. So it's on TMR as a thought provoker, all right? So it's to get us asking questions about the future. Uh, it's not really there to provide answers or solid predictions. And I think James Burke would be happy with me saying that because he says that about his own work in this very interview. He is posing questions and leaving it up to us to seek answers for ourselves. So it's a varied conversation. To an extent, it's about his life and work and the series that he created called Connections, which he started in the 1970s and then again worked on in the 1990s. And it gives some interesting insights into what it was like to work in television during the 1970s. That's really quite interesting. But the conversation goes well beyond that, touching on various subjects, the internet and access to knowledge, how technology might in future impact education, politics and the supply of material needs. Um, but most important, I think, most interesting, I think, the potential of technology to promote an increasingly decentralized world running against the current of ever bigger government and ever growing corporate monsters. And uh, I will have something more to say about that at the end after we've listened to this interview. I will leave it there for now, because I do think that I've said enough for the moment. So here it is. Please do sit back and enjoy this or continue running and enjoy this or whatever you're doing and enjoy this. It's very speculative, but it's very interesting. An interview with James Burke in his London home from May 2014, before the Brexit vote here in the UK, conducted by Mark Campbell. OK, throw some questions at you, mainly about connections. Sure, of course. Um, Wikipedia describes you as a, a science historian. Is are you? Is that true? What is it? No, um, no, it isn't. Well, I don't so, know. I don't know what you'd say. I, my 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 degree was in a minor subset of English, which in those days at Oxford there were various courses. One of which was concentrating more on literature. The other one, a mixture of literature and language, and the third one concentrating on a bit of literature and a lot of language. I did that one, mm -hmm. and then I went to Bologna. Mm -hmm immediately after graduation, to teach at the university. And I ended up teaching, effectively, Middle English right. to a very small number of Italian graduates who wanted to teach that themselves at university. Well, there ain't too many people looking for that qualification. Middle English as in as old English? As in pre-Chaucer. Pre okay, yeah. Uh, and I did that happily, and then I started working, uh, teaching English as a foreign language, and then I got the job of directing the Institute of Teaching and then I went down to Rome where there was a bigger institute linguistics institute and ran that and got a bit bored with that and fell backwards into television and it happened to be the first year was a thing called World in Action which was a kind of um, tonight type show mm. uh, current, current mm. affairs and politics mm. and they wanted somebody to report from the Mediterranean Basin and after a year of that I got a note from call from Tomorrow's World saying, we want to do some stories in Italy. You seem to speak Italian. Would you consider doing it? And I said, yeah, directing. I was, I was directing. And we did a couple of stories and they said, thank you, that's good. Now we'd like to do this kind of story and we need a reporter. And I said, well, we haven't got one. And they said, well, you do it. And I said, what do 
you mean not? And they said, well, can't you talk to a camera? I said, I don't think so. And they said, well, try. So I did. And they said, yeah, that works. I said, I don't really want to be a front person. I want to be a director. And they said, we'll give you five times the money. And I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it happened to be Tomorrow's World. The BBC had just set up the new science division and they were peopling it with humanities graduates because on the basis that if we understood the stuff, anybody would. And then they put all the scientists in the arts department for the same reason. Very clever thought. Mm. And I've done nothing but science and technology ever since. Mm. So science historian, you know, I mean, I spent, I spent four years studying late old English and okay. 54 years working in science and technology. Mm. So I'm more of a science historian, however unqualified, in terms of experience yeah. than I ever would be a medieval, medieval linguist. So the, the concept for connections was entirely your idea. Yes. And you say it was 75, or sort of when is when you started? Sort of, but we started production in 76. Okay. But it was in 75 that I had to kind of say to the BBC, this is what I'd like to do. Yes. And did the BBC say, absolutely, go for it? Were there yeah. Any, no, know, well, there was, see, you were allowed free reign of... Well, in those days, it was always like that. Yeah. There was more money than you could swill at, you know. Uh, if you had a good idea, the, the BBC would throw money at you. If it was a bad idea, or if it failed, you'd never work again. Mm-hmm. Also, but they still let you do it. But well, they, yeah, but, yeah. but don't, you see, I had had the good fortune to be to be fingered for the Apollo job. Mm-hmm. So I was already famous. That qualification is meaningless, as you know. <laughs> but I was on the box in front of the entire country mm. for, you know, four years. So, th- and the BBC, it's easier to give a job to somebody who's famous than to try and find somebody who's good but not famous. Mm. You know, so they shove it at the guys are known. I did a series after Apollo called The Burke Special. Terrible title. <laughs> uh, for about four years and then they said would you like to do something bigger yeah. because it's easier again to give somebody with a track record a job than try and find some new talent and I said sure and they said well come come back with an idea and I came back with the idea of connections and they said put it down if you put it in a paragraph and tell us how much you want we'll get and they did and I did and they did you know. and then it, I had to wait for about seven or eight months because the guy I wanted to work with was busy Mick Jackson, right? Yeah, who went on to great fame in Hollywood. You know, brilliant director, brilliant. Mm. And uh, I, the, the choice was to start with somebody else or wait for him, and I waited for him. Mm. And and we started. So it didn't really start until seventy five, seventy six. And how, how how were you limited, or were you limited by what you wanted to do? E.g., where you wanted to go. I no. mean, I get. I guess having to whittle down. Ten sort of themes or, or eight mm. themes, whatever was oh, yeah. tough. Mm. But I mean, the first and the last, in, if you like, the first is the okay. intro. And, okay. Yeah. But I mean, were you limited in terms of where you could fill no. the budget? Do you no. just no? Well, I mean, obviously, what you had to do is go in and invent a budget because obviously okay, it's yeah. all off the top of your head. Yeah. And I thought, well, fifty-minute shows, call it three-minute attention span, span. So call it fifteen sequences ish, average, fifteen sequences of which. At least seven have to be on location because of the excitement of being on location, of which at least three have to be costume drama because that kicks it along, and of which, you know, another seven have to be me going blah, blah to camera. On average, that's going to take this long to shoot. And on average, let's say we we think of the worst places to go to in terms of cost and time and call that the budget. So you'd give the BBC a budget. Let's pretend you give them five million and they say, OK, fine, you can have four. Yeah. They never said yes. They always said you can have. And, yeah. and then you, so what you did, as we still do, you yeah. inflate and yeah. they deflate. Of and you arrive at a compromise, you hope. So that's how we got to the budget. Mm. But they were, yeah, I mean, they, in those days, they, there was a lot of money. 
there was no competition, pretty much. Mm. And the BBC was sort of collegiate in the sense that it was, it wasn't yet going for the lowest common denominator. Mm. So it was interested in, in interesting ideas and was prepared to pay. Is it, was it BBC One? Yes, BBC One. So, but that's a surprise in itself, in a way. That not it then. Not that, back then. Okay. No. Mm. no. Back then, it was not surprising. Right. Back then, BBC Two was a place you didn't want to go to because yeah. it was too esoteric. Yeah, yeah. I remember they said, is this right for BBC Two? Or too and boring, said, one man and his dog. And it, well, it's sort of, yeah, yes. yes. But, David Attenborough wouldn't like to say that. No, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, he was the first controller. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how long, so uh, did you, I mean, was it literally a case of writing everything first, then going <clears> off and filming? Did you, what, what, how did it evolve according okay. to where you right. filmed? This, or? this is where my memory goes. And, uh, roughly, you know. Well, well, you kind of work backwards. Yeah. What's it about? It's about how everything is connected to everything else. Fine, easy to say. The next thing you do really is to say, in what kind of structure will I present this theory? And then you say, well how many programs will there be? And in those days, there was a kind of rule from the Beeb that you very rarely did more than 10 hours. Mm. I think Clark, Civilization, did 13. Mm. Bronofsky, Ascent of Man, did 13. They, I think the BBC felt at that time, even at that time, that 13 was too long. Mm. So they came up with this rule of thumb, say 10 hours. So you say 10 hours, okay, a bookend to say what's the show about, a bookend to say what have you learned and what, what does it all mean, eight storylines. Okay, what's the point? Well, since I had been in magazine show, format shows, Tomorrow's World, and then the Burke Special, which was a half-hour, one-man, blah-blah-blah show with an audience, live, so, you know, live interaction, okay. which was a different subject every week, the reason I came up with Connections was because it seemed to me that back then, of course, it's white-hot technology, Harold Wilson and all that stuff, Big clunky technology, big rockets going to the moon, computers filling an entire mm. floor of it. Mm. Uh, it was it was a kind of stick your thumb in their mouth because science science and technology are so riveting. It's like staring at a, through a plate glass window at a shop front. Mm. So it was very much shop front stuff. Nothing really, no storyline was ever longer than five minutes mm. because the the BBC thought, and I think rightly, that the audience wasn't really ready for big themes. In the sense that BBC Two, yes, mm. which is where Bronofsky and, uh, mm. and and Civilization went. So, connections happened because I suppose it struck me after a number of years of doing these bitty stuff that what we were doing was not helping the audience to see dot, join mm. up the dots mm. because through the seventies, technology very rapidly became a, a thing that people learned to live with. Sixties mm. and fifties. Nobody knew anything about science or technology. Nobody at all. I mean, I mean taxi drivers knew everything about everything. Knew nothing about it. Um, so the, I, I just struck me that it would be interesting to try and show what technology does to you. Mm. Because it was doing it to us. Mm. And we weren't <coughs> talking about it. So, so, right, okay, it's going to be a series about what technology does to you. Well, there are two ways to do it, as I saw it at the time. One was the standard contemporary approach, which which is to do a magazine show format with 23 five-minute pieces saying, gee, look, mm. and, and in each case, this woman's life was changed. And I thought, well, that doesn't really talk about the essential question. The only alternative was to look in the past. And that's where my, I suppose, linguistic work came helpful because I was used to, you know, looking at the Middle Ages and all that stuff. And so it was a question of joining up the dots, using history, to relate to technology and what it did to people. The second point being, 
technology changes people and in doing so it causes change to occur to other people so yeah. there was a ripple effect yeah, yeah. so that's the next thing you have to bring into it and therefore the whole thing really neatly says is there a kind of process by which one invention causes social change which requires another invention mm. which causes social change and then it made itself mm. and all you had to do was to ask where do I start and where do I stop and how do I link these programs together yeah. and again that was a kind of sawtooth thing you would mm. start in the past why am I starting there we'll think that in a minute mm. and you come to somewhere very different in the present that theme then becomes the sawtooth mm. for the next yeah. start in the past yeah. so if you end with with some kind of armaments mm. you then say here's where the first armament, serious armaments began in the past let's see where that leads us and of course it leads us to I don't know uh, baby bottles yeah okay okay the first time anybody ever thought about feeding little children was when they started surviving instead of dying mm. and the first time you get that is is you know in the 13th century 12th century when knitting appears in the west right. and knitted clothes keep babies alive yeah. so they don't die and you start with little things like wills which leave things to little children never happened before because okay. they were not expected to live and so this yeah. thought tooth thing yeah. and you do a number of those and then you see and again this is kind of uh, it's a kind of organic thing because you do the sawtooth and then you look at it and you think these modern innovations that we arrive at have no common overarching theme about them. Is there a way to find that? Mm. Because the final program has to take those mm. those themes and bring them into some kind of overall statement. And, and that was that was a difficult part. That was going back and unknitting the whole thing mm. to see if you could take it somewhere else in the modern world. That took the longest time. When you started filming, what did it go smoothly? To your, your recollection was because you 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 did you went so many different places. I mean, filming, for instance, you know the, the World Trade Center and all the scenes of abandoned New York and abandoned yes. highways and what, logistically logistic nightmare. Logistic nightmare. <laughs> yeah. First of all, the real problem is you've worked out from your budget that you've got this many shooting days mm. and this many travel days and this many what are called knicker days, where you have to be in a hotel for two nights to get your underwear done. <laughs> and these are you can't go on forever without having your clothing washed. True. So when you've done those basic things, you then say, I've got so many minutes to produce every day, um, and, and then the complexity of the shots and whatever you have in mind. Uh, and the other thing was, unless this thing's going to take forever, we're going to have to have two film crews simultaneously, obviously at each time moving further and further apart, with me commuting back and forward. Right. So then you say, when I'm not there, they do shots that don't involve me. Mm -hmm. When I'm there, now, that's not as easy as it sounds. No, no, no. Because A, you have to be in a certain place which can be reachable by that power. Mm -hmm. And then you have to be doing this particular sequence because if mm -hmm. you can't, you're sitting there until I come back. And my commuting got crazier and crazier. Yeah. The, the best one was Kuwait, London, Concord, London, New York, Concord. And when I got there, the, Mick Jackson said, what kept you? <laughs> <laughs> and at one point, it was quicker to go around the world to meet the other crew. Yeah. Uh, so logistically it was a nightmare the shoot the shoot was always good because mm. David Feig and Tony Pierce Roberts were the best cameramen around at the time with I mean by far Mick Jackson and David Kennard had just come off Cosmos right where they went to America to save everybody's bacon after the production company oh, right. uh, so they were extremely experienced yeah. so the minute you get to the location everything works like yeah. silk um, but I mean, the most. I mean, I just think it's a fantastically slick series. But the, and you look like you're having fun. You look like you. You look. I know it's your TV professional, but yeah. you look so relaxed and in control of all the situation. Especially the bit where you just 
you just you're standing in front of the, the rocket. And oh it, yeah. It goes, I, must, yeah, I was yeah, thinking yeah. that must have been such a stressful moment for no, you. No, no, no. I mean, the timing was absolutely. Of yeah, course, nowadays yeah. nobody would bother. They do it with CGI. But you know, the funny thing is, the funny thing is, yeah. we we. Uh, you know, you, you it's fairly straightforward. You write 15 seconds worth of words. You write as many words as you want to yeah, write, yeah. but the shorter the better. Yeah. So that particular little sequence was, I think, about 15 seconds of words. Add two seconds at the front end for stepping in, yeah. and two seconds for the camera to rack focus to yeah. the rocket. Yeah. So you've got yeah. yourself 19 seconds. Okay. So 19 seconds from zero, you start. The problem was, and it was a little stressful, but not that. No. Because I was working <laughs> with pros. I mean, these people were so good. The wind was blowing the wrong way, for the loudspeaker doing the countdown to be heard easily by us. Right. So we had this little cameraman down there going, okay. because that, and we couldn't hear. <laughs> and, and on zero, I had to do two yeah. seconds step in, do 15 seconds of words, point, yeah. rack focus, and it goes. Yeah. Uh, everybody said, we put, up a, we put up a second camera, of course, to yeah, catch yeah, it yeah, in case yeah. we lost it. Yeah. But, you know, you're doing your best, and you think, yeah. well, this will be fun. So we did it, and it yeah. worked. Yeah. And everybody stood there, and I remember Jackson saying, yeah. he couldn't talk because you would, would have heard him because the rocket's going. And, mm. the, I mean, and David pulled focus and the rocket went. Mm. We brought it back and we said, look! And the beep said, <laughs> it looks like back projection. Oh, you... And we said, you can't pull focus to back projection. No. And they said, the audience doesn't know that. And we said, the audience doesn't know about back projection. And they it said, oh, all right. Back projection. But nobody said good. <laughs> <laughs> there were one or two moments... But that was probably the most. That was probably the most exciting moment in the sense that you got. It wasn't going to come back for a second time. No, no. The chance of going wrong would be. Oh, yeah. And you know, so we kind of went. Phew, and had a few drinks yeah. afterwards. Yeah. So, but the, in general, there were one or two moments. For example, we got to Malaysia with a full crew there, and they said you can't film, and we said don't be silly. The ambassador of London, blah, piece of paper. He said do this. We did that, and they said no. You went to the wrong man to get permission can't film yeah. so we had to rewrite letters like crazy yeah, yeah. and in those days you couldn't scan stuff back and forward mm. so we just bluffed it we wrote this letter and somebody scribbled something <laughs> on the bottom we went around and said will that do and they said oh that's all right Excellent. and we filmed yeah anyway. who did all the historical reenactments i mean you went everywhere you went there seemed to be you know people dressing up and doing it were those historical reenactment societies that sort of did some, that yes, or some, extras some, or was it just the extras? cheapest thing is to find the local local yokels doing it yeah yeah the most expensive stuff is to hire actors and yeah. go to the Ealing setup and so on yeah. uh, we did a bit of that yeah uh, but mostly it was local yokels reenactment societies yeah. there was one marvellous one in Switzerland and we were we, I went I, I did the recce and to this Pike Museum because we wanted to do the Pike Square oh yeah uh, where the Pike Square yes. is invented blah 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 and the curator said you can come and you can use the Pikes and all that and we got the Swiss Army to dress up and do it because right. they, they yeah, yeah. wanted the publicity and I was muttering to this guy about medieval this and that and fairs and he said yeah we have a great fair here and we said when and he told me and I, I said what are you doing he said oh we're just reenacting a whole medieval fair you know people get drunk they do all the things we said can we film yeah, it? And he said, of course you can film it. We said, yeah. well, what would it cost? And he said, just give them all the drink they can drink. Excellent, yeah. So we turned up and just threw the camera at it. Is that the one, I remember, with a bit of nudity, there's a woman in the, going in the, in the tub, she gets yes, naked, and you, say, right. and you say, concentrate. You say, yeah. you say, yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. that's because she was drunk. They were all yeah. <laughs> and, and it was, I mean, it was free, because they do it every year. They love right. it, they dress up, yeah, they do yeah. this, and there's an audience out there watching. Europeans. Great. Yes. They were, it was wonderful. But once or twice it was expensive, but right. not often. Did the script change at all? Well, I guess it probably didn't from what you're saying. Once you started filming, the script was locked. 
Well, it was locked in the sense that the overall structure could yeah, not yeah. change. The storyline couldn't change. But obviously, if you got there, it was the rain. And the script, I had written a script that said something about glorious sunshine. Yeah, yeah, cool. you know. So there was a lot of tweaking like yeah. that. And also, sometimes you'd get there and the, and the visuals were just not worth mm. going for five minutes or whatever it was. Yeah. So you'd cut down to two and then think yeah. about something else. Yeah. You conclude, I mean, I'm, I remember I watched it quite recently, a few weeks ago, finished watching it mm. again. And oh, dear. <laughs> it stands up. I yeah. Mean, um, and in the last episode, you sort of the summing up episode, or I think it might be the penultimate one yeah. where you're in this, I think it's the BA computer, yeah. show, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. huge thing. And I remember you saying, <laughs> that, you know, what's this, what's the future? The future is not to have a computer in your home because you wouldn't know what to do with it. Yeah. Obviously, everyone has, but but the use for the computer now is, is simply just to access the internet nine yes. times out of ten. Yeah, I mean, right. people don't use it because... To I, compute. I mean, the idea of the computer in, the, in your program, and I guess in the 70s, was it's a way of predicting the future by putting in everything, and then it, it tells you what the future yes, is. But yes. Doesn't that, as a concept, that doesn't really exist to most people now? Oh, most people, no. But I, I mean, mean like, uh, you know, in terms of everyone using a computer, they don't use it for that reason now. Well, you say? I, no, I take issue with you there. Okay. I think the people who use computers professionally sure, do profession. use it that way. Okay. In fact, that's really all they use it for. I mean, in the sense that, a drug manufacturer or a weather forecaster or a financial or whatever uses the computer to predict. Mm. But in the sense of the de democratisation of computers in the homes, it hasn't, hasn't made people true. suddenly more... People no. are using it as a telephone or are using yeah, true, it as, as true, a glorified... True, true, but I think, you see, it's tight right when, when that programme was being made, and I, I mean, half-jokingly mean this, it was before 1984. Mm. I mean, it was big government, big computers, top-down mm. science... The ordinary person in the street didn't understand it, had no input whatsoever, mm -hmm. uh, was not asked to have any input in science. Uh, and so you, within that box, you thought of, of, mm. of computers in that way. So it was, it was more always that computers would be big mm -hmm. and they would be used by some kind of authorities mm -hmm. to project what should be happening, blah, yeah. blah, blah. <clears throat> and, and not, in a sense, disagreeing with you, the, the democratization of access, not mm -hmm. necessarily knowledge, but access. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, as it's happened so far, the access turns out to be absolutely mindless junk most of the mm. time. But I think that's a that's a transitional period. I think it's part of the general okay. educative process mm. that that access will allow us to have, in spite of the educational system, to educate people and, and gradually over one or two generations, I think, yeah. probably start to use it in that way. Yeah. Back then, were you, oh, it's a vague question, really positive about the way things were going? I mean, it, basically, it seemed to me at the end of <coughs> Connections you were saying, Think, you know, don't stop thinking. Think about what's, you know, don't just blindly yes. move forward. I yeah. mean, looking back on it <clears throat> now, is is, it, is the future any different? Do you think things have turned out as you sort of expected or as things largely left sort of as they were? I think, it's hard to say what I thought back then because I yeah, don't think I'd get any more, okay. but I think, I think what okay. I thought and what a lot of people thought back then was that, it, that inevitably, although this kind of top-down, big stuff, big government, big science, centralization of command, what Wilson called the commanding heights of the economy, all top-down. Mm. But it seemed that it did hold within it the possibility of access, of enfranchisement in stuff that people didn't know. And I think, I don't remember, but I think at the end of that program, I talk about realizing of the stuff we don't know. We don't, you know, we're beginning to know how much we don't know. Mm, mm. 
and 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 hinting possibly that the possibility that computing would provide the kind of mm. information or knowledge that we needed to enfranchise ourselves more. Mm. I think that's what I meant, but yeah. I'm not sure. I was young. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, no one seemed to predict the mobile phone. I mean, that's just nobody like... or the laptop. Yeah, or the laptop, or or the what was it called? There was, a, there was an interim thing called a something a P. PDP or something. Oh, palm top. Palm. No, 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 no. Before okay. that, oh, right, where okay. computers got down to this size, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's funny, isn't it? Because you look back at Star Trek with the, with the, you know, their, their flip the communicators, and you just that's just a mobile phone. That's, yes, that's I know all it is. it is. Yes, 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 yes. And I mean, <coughs> apropos of not apropos of this conversation, but when the nanofabricator gets here in fifty years' time, it'll be the holodeck, and all that stuff about make me a cup of coffee, and it does. It's going to happen. It, 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 are three D printers a, a blind no, avenue? No, are they on the no they... blind? Blind. It, I think three D printers are going to turn out to be like Betamax. Betamax. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> beta rather than beta. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting. Anyway. Yeah. No. No. Mm-hmm. No. Um, I, I don't know if you watch much TV. Um, do you think that what's the state of British TV like in terms of the stuff that you were doing back then? Uh, is there anything going on in a, of a similar like Brian Cox? Do you know? Brian Cox, the yeah. Brian is an inspired professional scientist mm. who manages to get his enthusiasm across very well. He's not a professional communicator. Um, I think. I think. This I, I don't want to sound like self-serving, but oh. <clears throat> I think the business of communicating is a skill, as is any other skill. Mm. And it is it is um, specific and specialised, mm. and a lot of it needs training. Standing in front of a camera and talking to a camera, I think, is like standing on your head. You know, it's like monkeys scratching themselves. Either you can do it, or you can't. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you can be taught. Well, you can be taught to do it a bit, mm. but being able to talk through a camera to people on the other side and have them feeling you're there mm. talking to them is a skill like standing on your head. Everything else in in broadcasting and in communications is a, is an intensely Specialist skill, mm. writing the sentences so they read well, writing the paragraph so it makes sense, talking clearly, uh, using the camera in a way to illustrate best what you want to do and yet still have moments of excitement on top. That's a very, very specialised skill. I say that because what I want to say about what's happened, I think, I think first of all, forget commercial television. Commercial television wants to sell, make money, and if it, it can have a bit of froth on it, that's nice. The BBC, on the other hand, has a duty, it seems to me, to maintain the quality of what television is for as long as it lasts, which is not much longer, I think. Mm. I, I think terrestrial television, satellite television, the stuff on the box is rapidly becoming theatre, yeah. which is what, that's fine. I mean, it's a great theatre, you know, plays, dramas, cops and robbers. News and current affairs and documentaries and that kind of thing, I think is going to rapidly shift to the, to the internet and become niche broadcasting. And then you're going to see, I think, some very, using using um, CGI, you're going to start seeing some very high-quality stuff right. because it's cheap. Mm. I mean, you don't have to go anywhere. Just sit in front of the CGI or don't sit anywhere and you can have really professional behaviour by professional mm. uh, broadcasters. I think that that the BBC primarily took an easy option. I think it became fashionable to think that really to see science or art or something, it would be much nicer to get those people to come and talk. That's a good idea. Mm. But being a professional broadcaster and at the same time a fully-fledged scientist isn't necessarily easy. No. Or an art person or a music person. Mm. 
sometimes you'll get the best out of those people by judicious interviewing and illustration of what mm. it is they have in their mm. minds, their thoughts. Mm. There's nothing wrong with not being able to be a broadcaster. It's like, I, I can't, I don't know, I can't uh, uh, make a cupboard. I can't, yeah. I can't do uh, uh, exobiology. I'm not worried by the fact no. that I can't. No. So I think, I think that what's happened in the BBC is a... Presumably once they lose the licence fee, which is, must be in the next few years, then, then the whole thing will change. I mean, how can they hold on to that when there's only a couple of channels yes. that you pay for and everything no, no, else you can right. get for free? You're right, you're right. The, the more the BBC becomes like the other channels, the less mm. reason there is for it to exist. No. And I think, I mean, once upon a time that might have been a tragedy, but I think with the internet available mm. and CGI and everything else... Mm. Talent is going to be expressing itself soon. I think this is what I meant about being in a transition period. Mm. Soon, some talent is going to start showing mm. itself on the internet, and there's no reason why it shouldn't be the highest quality talent around. The, the, but, you know, but, then, but then it is how you use it, because I, you know, I found you on the internet very simply by putting your name into Google, yes. and it came up with John Knowledge Web, and yeah, it came right, up right. with that. Yes. Now, if it, pre-internet, I probably would have found you somehow, but I wouldn't have known where to start. No, I'd have had no, to ask around. No. It's a marvellous instrument. For, for speed. And, and yes, yes. you just think, oh, what's that? And the apps, which I haven't got, but where you play a bit of music and it tells you what it is. Sure, all that sure, is sure. fab, yes. fabulous, because yes. that, that, that's about access, access to information. Yes, yes. But obviously at the same time, there's... There's, there's yeah. a kind of giant enema going on. But you see, enemas end. <laughs> if you, if you forgive, <laughs> forgive the metaphor. And then, and then you're clean and then you start again, Fine. you know. And I, that's I, a very I think, positive view. I mean, that's very. I think it is. I think. Positive. What else can it be? I mean, you know, everybody's got 82 billion neurons in their head, and all we've done <clears> is <throat> fail the brains with inadequate educational systems for very good reasons. Mm. You can't teach everybody idiosyncratically. You can't mm. give everybody one to one tuition. You can't nurture one particular talent in every single person, but they've got it. Mm. And I think the internet is the first time we've. It looks as if we're going to be able to deal with that. Mm. And once we do, you know, I mean. People who express themselves badly and talk stuff out there are doing so because they haven't been taught to do it any other way. Mm. Or they haven't been taught at all, you know. And there's nowhere else it's going to come from if it's not going to come from the internet. Yeah. And I think it will, and I think we'll see a, a real, not my lifetime, but a real renaissance of talent, I okay. think. Because, it, I mean, it's all in there, in people's heads. They're just blocked. Yeah. Because with the technological limitations and everything else... You know, there are five ways to do something. If you can't do it those five ways, you're either stupid or a failure or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, there are nine billion, eight billion people. Yeah. And five ways to do things. Give us a break. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what kind of odds are those? So how come you're not on the TV anymore? That's what I want to know. Because <laughs> you, well, you, you're a brilliant communicator still. And what's the, what's the story? Why, well, what happened? Well, well, what happened choice the, or? The, no, with the BBC... 20-something years ago, the BBC yeah. said, we don't want to do any more... You know, these things are going cycles. Mm. We don't want to do any more presenter-led series. Mm. We want to do it without people in, on camera. Right. And they said, so would you like to do quiz shows? And I said, no, I'd rather be dead. Mm -hmm. So I left. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, sh and sure enough, you know, five years later or four mm -hmm. years later, they were back to doing presenter-led yeah, yeah. shows, by which time I was long gone. And there were new people, editors, choosing who did what. Okay. So, you know, you're very quickly dead in television. Because mm. the next editor of a program doesn't know you, doesn't want to know you. Fortunately, I found Discovery coming the other way. And Discovery, in those days, wanted to do exactly the kind of programs that I was doing. So I spent, between Discovery and PBS, I spent another 20-odd years making the same kinds of programs, yeah. but for them. Yeah. Um, and then Discovery sold themselves right. and went down market yeah. and said, <clears throat> we don't really want to do this quality of program anymore because we've got new bosses in Europe. Oh, fine, okay, that's, it belongs mm. to them. Mm. PBS doesn't do anything. PBS goes around saying, give me money. 
poor souls. There is no PBS. It's just lots and lots of rinky-dink little stations yeah, in yeah, a network. Yeah. So unless, you know, Tesco or Aramco or somebody buys programming for yeah. PBS, they make nothing. They make little, you know, Mrs. Mrs. Bloggs' chickens. So there wasn't a market anymore. And at that point, going back to the BBC and saying, remember me, <laughs> is like, you know, disinterring the corpse. Mm. I didn't feel like doing that. Uh, besides which, my wife at the time, who died five years ago, uh, about 10 years ago, Madeleine said, look, couldn't we try living together? Because you've never <laughs> And I said, yes, your turn, you know. So, um, Good. I don't think I, I don't think I want to go back to television. But schlepping around the world with a film crew is no fun anymore. Used to be fun. Hmm. But now flying. You could, but like you could do your own blogs on the internet. You I could, could indeed, yeah, but you know. You know which wants? is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the other thing about the internet, which is extraordinary and brilliant and wonderful, is it's free. Yeah. Which you know, thank the Lord it started out as a sort of the, the collegiate college sort of thing, yeah. isn't it, I think? And then it it's could so easily have started out as a as a as a you know a corporate thing. Corporate yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. And no, that no. would have been well that I think that I mean that's the I think that's brilliant. You could poke you could yeah. blog, you could do YouTube. Yes, yes. And it's you don't apart from the equipment, that's it. Yeah. You don't pay yeah. which yeah. is yes. wonderful. I like writing <laughs> and I've always liked writing and so mm. I mean I write books. And I'm working on the 13th now. Oh, okay. And it's um, unfortunately more than I can chew. So it's going to be at least another three years. Have you, um, excuse me, have you written your autobiography? No. Yeah, would you want to do that? No, of course you haven't. No, I don't. No, thanks. It might be somebody who might be interested in reading that. No, no. No, okay. No. Uh, last couple of questions. Uh, just random questions. What's yes. your favourite city or, or town or place or location? You say you, you, you live between London and... I live in London, so south of France. My favourite city. That's very difficult. Boy, that's difficult. Um, different cities with different it, different cities with different reasons. reasons. I suppose overall, 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 Rome. Okay. Yeah. I spent three marvelous, four marvelous years in Rome. Okay. When I was young, you know, right. formative years. Yeah. Famous uh, favourite novelist. Do you read much fiction? No, I don't read much okay. fiction. Um, my favourite novelist used to be Thomas Hardy. Okay. So say Thomas Hardy. Okay. Yeah. And what are you what are you reading at the moment? Are you? Uh, I'm reading. I'm reading research for the book. Nothing. But which, is, which is about. You want the short version, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> you give me whatever version you want. It's uh, the thesis is that throughout history, social institutions of all kinds are established in the first place to handle some form or other of scarcity, to keep us surviving. Okay. And that's been true throughout history until now. Um, modern governments do one thing or the other, depending on their political colours, in order to say how much wealth should go where in a society. Mm. I mean, should there be distribution? Should it be more, less, blah, blah, blah. So it's all to do with scarcity. Uh, since the Industrial Revolution, we've, we've, we've induced perceived scarcity with advertising. You know, the very first American company to do it in 1898 was called the You Need a Biscuit Company. Because until you saw that, you didn't know you need a biscuit. I mean, it's a great title, isn't it? You need a biscuit. Yes. yes. And it was called U N E E D A. <clears throat> okay. That was the company. So we've been we've created perceived scarcity on the back of real scarcity, and the book, and what I want to do in the first two thirds of the book is to examine the major social institutions and values, mm. value structures, and so on, mm. to see if my thesis is true that 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 what matters most of all is. is Scarcity equals value. Mm. If something is scarce, it's valuable. If yeah. something is scarce, do we share it out or do we keep whatever? And the whole of society works on the basis of that. Mm. Uh, with the arrival of the nano 
fabricator in 40 years' time, we will have totally sustainable abundance. Everybody will be, in, in the material essentials, totally autonomous. The capitalist market structure, political structures will all become obsolete. So do you, so do you mean that we will all own... A nanofabricator. Oh, yeah. Oh, sure. The first thing a nanofabricator does is make another one. Okay, right. So there's one, two, four. Yeah. And then you put it on a software app. But the civilization will collapse. Well, will it? See, this is. I mean, company, how will anybody. Read my book! Okay. (laughs) Companies won't be able to sell you anything because you've already got it. Well, the only thing that will sell is software. Everyone will lose their jobs and. No, 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 no. Nobody will eat. Oh, no, no. Biggest software market in history. And software may end up being the only thing we do. Because a fa- nanofabricator, the, the, the feedstock, the raw feedstock is dirt, air, water, and carbon. And carbon is acetylene gas because it's full of it. After a while, you make your own carbon, okay. acetylene gas. Okay. So once you're going, you make your own. So you have everything except very rare materials from which everything is made. So just like in Star Trek, you mm. say, make me the Mona Lisa. It makes a Mona Lisa. It costs nothing because you've got dirt in the garden. All, all social structures based on scarcity will be rendered obsolete. There will be no point. There's no crime because what, what you have, I can have <coughs> like that. Mm. Uh, you own a bit of land, fine, I'll go somewhere else. Antarctica, up a mountain, because with what the nanofabricator mm. makes me, in terms, for example, of photovoltaic energy, I can live anywhere. Mm. I have no need for anything. question is social interaction. What happens to society yeah. and the culture we once shared? Won't that? I mean, I'm being devil's advocate. Sure. Won't that bring out the worst in people? In a sense of, un, there'll be. Uh, you want some drugs? Grow some drugs. You have your own drugs. You have make your own. Make you make them. them. Sure. So everyone will be drugged out. Yes. Alcoholics. Yeah. Why not? Money won't stop you from doing these things. There is no money. So yeah. Okay. There's no money. You want to kill yourself on drugs? Up to you. Yeah. When it, when it, if you want to get so drunk you go out and kill somebody else? That's one of the problems we have to think about. Because if we all live. Do we all end up living in tiny communities? We only came into the cities because of the Industrial Revolution. Mm. I mean, all of our history, except the last mm. blip, has been out there in the wilds. Mm. I think we will return to tiny communities. You need tiny communities for some social interaction. Mm. I think people need yeah. social interaction. But then there's 3D holograms. You don't have dinner with your old granny who lives in New York and you live in Ouagadougou. Mm. She's there at the table with you. It's 3D Skype, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So... That deals a lot with a lot of interaction. Mm. Doesn't deal with reproduction. Interesting point. I mean, how mm. do we reproduce? Do we actually meet, or do we do it with in vitro fertilization, or what? Mm. Who needs but, to meet? What? Who needs to meet anymore? If you, if that well, exactly, sort of... exactly. So uh, there are many, many interesting questions, and mm. of course, the book doesn't have any answers. You just, <laughs> just ask lots of questions. You do ask a lot of questions, don't you? Which is good. You don't. Well, ask, you don't. You sort of answer, and know. then you say, but yeah, well, I don't which, know. Is, which is great. Which well, is, yeah, you know. I mean, people have to come to their own answers. Yeah, Oh, going back to one last thing before you say you've had enough. You've probably had enough. Um, there's an interesting possibility, I think, in the very near future. Talk, we were talking about uh, democratization of knowledge and involvement. And so mm. I think big data is going to rock the boat seriously with the political world. Because one of the things you can do with the search algorithms is you can throw them into social media mm. and have them analyze I mean, trillions of tweets, trillions of uh, Facebook, trillions of everything. And that's where people's real life is. That's where people are saying what I really want, what I want to do, what I am doing, what I don't like, what I hate. Mm. That's what politicians pretend to know and don't know because mm. they stand up and say, follow me. I'm the one who can give you what you want. And another guy says, follow me. Two people offering the choice to eight billion people. Again, are we kidding? You throw search algorithms, social, social analytics stuff into 
the ocean of social media. That's what people want. And so what do you need politicians for? Mm. If you know from a, a total scan, what is it? Pierre Simon Laplace said in 1800, you want, you want me to predict everything? Tell me everything. And everybody went, ha ha. Now we can, mm. or soon, in real time. And I think that's going to shake the political structure to its foundations. Because people are going to say, what do we want? There's two people up here telling, yeah. saying, follow me to the future. When the data contains everything a thousand billion times more than you'd ever get from a ballot box. So what do you need politicians for? You need bureaucrats doing crowdsourcing and doing what the crowd says to do. Mm. Period. Because obviously the voting has gone down and down and people more vote, people vote for X Factor and stuff. For that reason, Representative that, democracy, invented in the 17th century and not changed since, is neither representative nor democratic. But do you think, I mean, I, I kind of think people should vote. They should, there should be a box they cross to say, I'm not voting. But I think people, it's, it's difficult to know whether people are being apathetic or they're deliberately not voting. Or is the system wrong? I mean, mm. do two or three or ten choices mm. remotely satisfy the complexity. It's too much choices. I have, I have a problem with choice anyway. So well, but people want, people be more happier probably with just two choices, this or this. No. Do you, no. Okay. No, I don't think so. I think, I think. I'm not saying it's better. I'm just saying that it would, if, if people might. Yeah, it simplifies it, it for people. Yeah. But if you don't ask them, if you just, uh, under, if you run the search algorithms on what it is they're talking about, mm, yeah, okay. you know what they want. Yeah. So you can say, look, we've done this crowdsource and we yeah. know that 99% of you really want this. So why don't, why don't people, politicians? Well, why because, don't, the, because the predictive so. analytics isn't ready yet. Right. But it will be in the next 10 years. Okay. And the politicians are going to fight tooth and nail. They don't want to be out of a job. I mean, all they care about is being in a job. But aren't they just then going to appeal to whatever's currently on that Twitter at that moment well, and just yeah, say, we'll give you more of this, we'll give yeah, you less of that? Yeah, yeah, they could do. But there's a big difference between we'll give you a choice, come to a ballot box and do it, because mm -hmm. people don't, they can't be bothered. No. But you, if they say, I like this, let me offer you that, Nine, there are something like mm. nine billion tweets a day. Mm. Nine billion tweets will very quickly tell you whether the guy mm. has any traction or not mm. and whether or not he's beginning remotely to, to talk about the 17,000 problems that people live with. Because mm. politicians like to say, this is what matters. Unemployment, uh, immigration, mm. uh, blah, blah, blah. That's not life. Life is mm. much more complex mm. than that. And I think, well, anyway, that's what I just want to throw in there. Do you tweet? Do, no. Do you approve of tweeting or disapprove? Or have I don't view have of a view on it. I mean, no. do people do what people do? I mean, I, I, I think, I think the more the more choices you give people, the better. Yeah. The, you can't have too much data. You can't. You can't. You can't deny. You can't select for people. You've got to say, here it is. Learn how to learn yeah. how to use it. Does that extend to sort of freedom of speech? Because obviously nowadays people <clears> are getting all sorts of trouble. For perceived absolutely non PC of course freedom of speech, of course, freedom and that, speech. that must include it, surely, mustn't it? You oh, know, of course when it you does. say choice, must include the it choice must. to say whatever you want. Yes, it must include, and you choose whether to, to listen to it. Yes, or not. yes, uh, do no harm, as is in the doctor's thing. That's the mm. only rule there should mm. be: do no harm. Mm. And if you say nigger because you want to do harm to black mm. people, and and the way you say it. Mm shows you want to do harm, then that's a problem to be yeah. that you should be dealt with. But the fact that somebody runs a jingle from the 1920s, the son has got his yeah. hat on, yeah. uh, the next thing that follows logically is that all historical documents will have yeah. to be sanitised. Well, it's 1984, isn't it? Yeah, sanitised, so where goes the truth? And the fact that people said nigger in 1920 yeah. is a fact you cannot change. Yeah. You can sanitise it, and then we can hope people forget that people didn't used to, used to do this well, or that. Why, why do you want to forget? It's part of... 
here we are. That's right. So, That's right. That's why this is utterly thoughtless. And it's all, it's all happening. I mean, I, I didn't realise it until recently. It, things like Enid Blyton books. Yes, are, yes. Every time they're, every few years, they are gradually swept a little you, bit you cleaner. Could be, little you bit could be cleaner. too young to remember Gollyberry Jam. I have a Gollywog in my study, actually. Ah, you could go to jail for I know. Well, I, no. I know. Uh, and it's see, sitting there, my gra- it's my grand's, and I just, it's sitting there, it's a little, you know, with a... Yes, yes, yes. But I mean, the answer, I don't know. The, the answer but I remember, I remember, it's Robinson's, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. But the answer, it seems to me, is again, the, the internet provides, the internet and the educative poss- possibilities that it mm. presents mm. is the answer to this problem of, mm. of whether you treat minorities well or not, or whether minorities are minorities, because they soon won't be. And it doesn't matter. Because does it matter? When you say they soon won't be, because of homogenous, it will just spread out and it will all be... Yes, I mean, human, I mean, I mean, more the human race. The last, so. the last, the last figure I saw said that uh, more than fifty percent of the United States population is now not United States born. Right. So it's inevitable. Yeah, of course, it's yeah. inevitable. The, the thing is, you can't instead of changing attitudes by government diktat, you change mm. attitudes by having people learn mm. that there's nothing dangerous about a black no. person or a yellow person or a green person no. from Ireland. You know. And that they're and they've got eighty two billion neurons. Yeah. And if they can't pass your test, it's because culturally yeah. I mean you go and pass their test never in a million years. Yeah. I mean, you know, I wouldn't last five minutes in the Brazilian jungle uh, among the headhunters, whatever yeah. they are. Yeah. As they wouldn't last five minutes no. in Piccadilly Circus. So what's all right, all right, what's your uh, we'll end in a minute, okay. Right. What's your what's your view on UKIP then? Is it printable? UKIP. Or do you have a view? Uh, I do, yes, if I do. We're talking racist, or if we're talking <laughs> Well, I don't think I don't know whether you, I, I I can't I don't think U, UKIP is a racist no. uh, party. They don't seem to be racist. One or two mad yeah. people say yeah, things. Yeah. I think UKIP is questioning something that I would also question. Mm. And the the question is, if you're left wing, you worry that UKIP will take votes away from the Conservatives and give the election to the Labour Party, and that's a view that you, is a different thing to discuss. As far as UKIP are concerned, the qu- questioning the membership of the European Union and the reason it exists worries me too. I think the technology is driving us in exactly the opposite direction. It seems to me that an entity like the European Union, a major centralised, federalised, homogenised, top-down, is a perfect 19th century solution Mm -hmm. to a 21st century problem. Mm -hmm. We should be looking in entirely the opposite direction. In my little village in France, there's an American living in the village who's a carpenter. Very, very high-quality carpenter. He makes amazingly expensive stuff. For Japanese, Chinese, Russians, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And I said, how do you do it? And he said, well, I make it here and then I ship it there. I said, well, how do you find these people? On the net, you moron, he said. <laughs> I said, well, why don't you do it somewhere? And he said, I like living mm. here. And I remember in Tomorrow's World, I once said, you know, one day it'll be, I'll be able to sit on a Sicilian mountain with a computer and access everywhere. And now I can. Yeah. I mean, I do all my research in the UCLA libraries, mm. but from upstairs. Mm. So the technology is driving us in the direction that would make it much easier, much more flexible, much more profitable for any entity to work alone, yeah. networked. Yeah. You don't need commissions and mm-hmm. parliaments mm-hmm. and incredible expenditure mm-hmm. and all that bureaucratic mm-hmm. You need to facilitate a flexible, agile activity on the part of communities, maybe as small as towns. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I think, I think it's true to say that the state of Kentucky has this massive foreign, foreign trade going on. As, because as an entity within American, within mm. the United States, you can, a state can do that. And it's got this massive foreign trade stuff going on because it's using technology to do so. So 
pulling us all together into a kind of we'll never fight the Germans again thing is no longer valid. Mm. And certainly it doesn't, I mean, it's big, clunky, mm. and it, it doesn't recognise that the local needs, not just England and immigration stuff, but everywhere, mm. Mm. you know, technology facilitates allowing Ukrainians to be Ukrainians and be successful. Mm. Uh, Italians, Turks, mm. whatever you like. Mm. We don't all have to be the same. In fact, no. the opposite is true. And we can trade without it, can't we, it seems to me. But yes. people have always traded... I remember when it started and Ted Heath used to say, you know, businessmen wake up in the morning and they think one million or four million either way, depending on the exchange rate today, how do I price my stuff? Computer can do that like that and make all the arrangements and make your company work that way from one second to another. Couldn't do it back then. So you had to have a single thing. The monolith, the simple, Mm. going back to two choices in politics Mm. and stuff like that. Mm. Had enough? <laughs> I think we've covered lots of that most of yeah. Thank you very much. Okay, well, thanks for listening to that interview. I hope you agree with me that that was a very interesting conversation. I do think that he has a great imagination for these things, and I've always found his enthusiasm for what he's talking about very compelling. Um, I do, however, have a few misgivings about the kind of world that Mr. Burke envisages. Um, I am less convinced than he that uh, technology will necessarily or even highly probably lead in an overwhelmingly positive direction. I mean, I wonder, for example, if the possibly appalling environmental effects of an out-of-control nanotechnology might considerably outweigh the promised benefits of personal nanofabricators? Just a question. I also wonder how transhumanism might fit into his picture of the future. That certainly concerns me. Genetic engineering, unregulated and available to anybody who can afford it. And um, I find it difficult to believe that corporations and states developing such technologies wouldn't fight tooth and nail to ensure that they retain control of these developments. And a future with no crime... Is crime always caused by physical needs? What about the pure lust for power? All sorts of questions in my mind, and as I say, misgivings. But anyway, you know what I think? Technology can be a wonderful thing if it is used responsibly, but it will never save us because it's not capable of real transcendence. But those concerns aside, I do think much of what he says is very interesting, and of course... He's not being definitive about any of this. He's talking very speculatively, on the fly, so to speak, because it's an interview. And as he said himself, he's in the business of essentially posing questions for us and pointing to possible futures and asking us to assess matters for ourselves, which I think is great. But there is one main point that I think is very helpful to take from this conversation. His overall vision, which I do find very attractive... And by that I mean the the vision for an increasingly decentralised world in which individuals and communities of people united by common interests may be empowered more and more by advances in technology so that we may forge a future in which big governments and massive corporations will become less and less relevant to the way the world is simply developing. I find that a very attractive vision. But as I say, I'm less sanguine about its inevitability. It seems to me that, you know, there are essentially two roads here. One which you know, he has sketched for us, the road leading to more a more decentralised world of empowered individuals and communities. But, you know, is, is there not also that other road of increased control in which technology continues as a powerful tool of the state, corporations, institutions, super elites? I mean, I take James Burke's point that the trajectory of democratisation has been given extra impetus via technology. 
But I do think that other trajectory of control is still very much alive and kicking, and that it will do everything it can to domesticate and neutralise the effects of that other trajectory, which prompts me, basically, to conclude that it's up to us to do what we can to influence one road rather than the other. As many of us as possible, by the way we live our lives, how we use our resources, but I think most important, how we think as individuals, not as ants in an anthill, but as individuals made in the image of God. So I think that's inspiring and worth thinking about. And it's the main thing that I want to take from this conversation. So as I say, I hope you enjoyed it and that you've got something from it. And once again, a big thank you to Mark Campbell, who owns the recording, for allowing me to publish this. And also a big thanks to James Burke himself for agreeing to this interview appearing on The Mind Renewed. Now, next time, we should be speaking with Josh Wisley of the new Eschaton podcast, which I highly recommend. Very absorbing, thought-provoking podcast, looking at uh, all kinds of things. I'll read, actually, from his About page. It's probably the best thing to do. Quote, Eschaton is a podcast for those interested in the great mysteries and big questions of the universe as they relate to the world around us. It's a series that challenges conventional wisdom and prevailing belief systems by attempting to offer fresh insight into our most important questions, both old and new, unquote. So pretty much anything in there, but it is actually a very, very interesting podcast. It's going extremely well, so I'll be very pleased to speak to Josh Wisley next time. Thereafter, uh, Laura Maxwell will be joining us, who is a spiritual counsellor ministering to people via her ministry that's called Our Spiritual Quest, and she's ministering to people caught up in the New Age and occultism. She was once involved in Luciferian religion herself um, before coming to faith in Christ, so I'll be very interested to speak to her about her experiences and her conversion and her ministry. Thereafter, another conversation with the lawyer and lecturer, Adi Inka Mackinday. Our previous conversation with him centred in his academic paper, Can the British State Convict Itself?, where we talked about Tony Blair, the troubles in Northern Ireland, and the so-called extraordinary renditions of the so-called War on Terror. This time we shall discuss issues raised in his recent article called The Pan-Islamic Option, The West's Part in the Creation and Sustaining of Islamist Terror. Disturbing stuff, but very interesting at the same time. So those are the scheduled interviews. As I often say, though, other things are in the pipeline, so any of that could get shifted around as other arrangements work out or don't work out. So please don't hold me to any of that too tightly. But that's the basic picture of what's going to be happening. So that's it for today. As I say, I hope you enjoyed today's programme and that you've taken away at least something from what I think is a very interesting conversation. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, of themindrenewed.com, and I very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future. Mm -hmm.